Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on podcast for A Just World. I'm joined with my co-host, Reverend Dr. Velda Love. Velda, we're um, deeper into Lent yet, and we are getting to uh, engage today what is probably my favorite scripture in the entire Bible, Psalm 126. Yes. Yes, it is. um, This is, I would think, is a, a restorative psalm. It is um, recognizing that um, there are dreams out there and there are places where um, we can laugh, filled with laughter um, and shouts of joy. This Lenten season brings many things to mind in terms of this movement of Jesus toward his last days. Uh, But the Lord is faithful. What we find in this psalm is that that's not the end of the story. No, and what I what I love about the psalm too is that the people uh, experience God's faithfulness when they deal with reality. Yes, you know they've been through exile. Yes, they have um, lived generations in exile. Their literal material fortunes are gone. The material you know structures of their town, their city. Are destroyed. People are leveraging that. You know, you, you can read other texts about that time. People were leveraging it to take advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. Um, and finally, there's this uh, resolve mm-hmm. to start planting seeds again to deal with the rubble and the ruin and um, and start to build. Mm-hmm. So it's it's restoration, but it's not without. It's not without walking in the, into the action of God's love. Right. And that action also allows us to recognize that um, we don't always get to experience um, the material fortunes. Right? Those get stripped away, but that's not what God is asking us to seek after. Uh, that we are really called to uh, be with those who weep and mourn and lose but we can't get lost in that, that's reality. Mm-hmm. Part of this is also to see that God is with us in the rebuilding, in the restoration, um, and that we are to plant seeds. And I think what we are doing during this Lenten season with the complexity of voices and, and such deep cultures is we are planting seeds. And, and that's a reason to shout. Absolutely. And we come gathered, we, we've changed the format and it's been really exciting and the depth of conversation that has emerged by having conversations with a panel of people has just been incredible. But the reality that we are dealing with is that people have very busy schedules. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so unfortunately today our panel just um, kind of at the last minute um, be- became a conversation with David Kim, yes. which is rich and deep and we're so excited to to share. Yes, yes. David, um, I I met David at the summit, uh, the Sojourner Summit, Um, and then I saw David again in in New York City um, at another conference, and it was David presenting this theology of love, 
And I'd never heard that before. And then I thought, saw this young man, this um, Korean, uh, American, talking about the theology of love. And I thought, well, he's got to be part of this conversation. And he's been part of the Racial Justice Task Force. He has brought uh, his lived experience of what it feels like in his body and in his soul and in his spirit uh, to be rejected, um, to be dismissed, um, to be uh, part of the oppressed, and yet to be able to stand and still talk about love. So mm-hmm. I, I really, I love David. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, absolutely. And I'm there's, excited that, that he's part of our conversation yeah, today. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom flowing. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're excited. Well, let's get to it. Thank you for tuning in to Podcast for a Just World. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, Like the water courses in the Negev, may those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Podcast for a Just World. I'm your host, Tracy Howe Whispleway, Minister for Congregational and Community Engagement with the United Church of Christ National Setting. And joining me as a co-host on this uh, Lenten series journey is the Reverend Dr. Velda Love, Minister for Racial Justice for the United Church of Christ. Hi, Tracy. It's good to be with you again. Uh, we are moving into the Lenten season, and I'm excited that we are offering Sacred Conversations to End Racism uh, as a way to enter this cultural narrative and uh, restoring identities so that we are recognizing and hearing the full uh, lived experiences and voices of our cultural sisters and brothers during this season. So I'm excited to be with you and I'm excited to be uh, with David, Kim and Kim. David and I uh, met, um, and David, I want to say we met at the Sojourners Conference uh, in Washington, D.C. last year. That's right, that's right. And was excited to hear, actually, no, it was in New York City. And you talked about love, the theology of love. And so... Oh, right, at the Revolutionary Love Conference. Yes, yes. So I wanted to uh, just invite David. He is both... Both uh, an advocate around these issues of justice, love-driven politics. He's a member of the Racial Justice Task Force for the work that I do as the Minister for Racial Justice at the United Church of Christ. And his voice is important uh, because I don't think we talk about love enough. And because we are in Mm. this season of Lent, uh, David has a lot to offer um, from both his cultural ancestral context as well as ways in which he is restoring justice through his lens. 
Absolutely. Mm. And uh, I, I want to take a moment just to um, pause there, Valda, because I don't think a lot of our listeners realize that it's not, you know, you are um, certainly um, an academic force, a theological force, um, a creative force in making and bringing sacred conversations to end racism into the world, but you're not doing it by yourself. You've, there's a, an entire community of people, and David is one of those who's kind of walking alongside, and um, we participate together in calls, we check in with one another, we review material, we um, go through trainings, those kinds of things. So I really want our listeners to uh, know that this is just such a rich um, resource that is being touched by such um, uh, phenomenal voices of, um, I want to say, uh, uh, faith and also humanity. And David, our last uh, year we did a series on sacred conversations to end racism that really focused on bringing to light this political construct of race. And mm. this um, this season, a lot of a lot of that also, um, you know, tends to be manifest in our context in the United States. Um, through uh, whiteness and blackness and proximity to those things and, mm -hmm. and, and power and manipulation. And um, as Sacred Conversations to End Racism is a restorative justice journey, it really is, it empowers people to find and root their identity in a cultural narrative. But then the question is, for, for a lot of people who have access to that privilege and power, they aren't immediately, you know, that actually is the cost of that privilege and power to races. Um, and what does it mean to root our identity in cultural narrative? And what is your unique experience? Well, that's powerful. As a person of Asian descent in the United mm -hmm. States. Velda mm -hmm. looks like she wants to say something. Are you going to, you want to say something to start? into their community thinking that there was a dominant culture or dominant language or dominant history and that they could begin to read uh, the Bible and look at theology, especially womanist and black liberation theology through the eyes of, of people groups that have been part of this narrative for centuries, uh, hundreds of thousands of years. And so Christianity started on the continent of Africa and so ways in which we bring that resource to light so that we are deconstructing and decolonizing whiteness in a way that does not obliterate it or uh, put it at the bottom and call it inferior, but ways in which we invite the community to sit together to hear from the different perspectives. And so I'm excited to be working at the United Church of Christ and bringing all of this context to our churches so that we can uh, be a just world for all and that we are really living a radical resistant life. 
Absolutely. So David, please share a little bit about yourself or a lot a bit about yourself <laughs> to, our, uh, to our listeners. Um, uh, you know, just, just briefly kind of what your professional setting is and then oh, what, sure. how do you root, what cultural narrative are you rooted in? Who are your people and how do you understand yourself in uh, this world with many different identity markers? Sure. First, excuse me. Um, first, I want to thank uh, you, Tracy, for the invitation to participate. I know you and I have not yet met, but I feel like you are a ready partner in this work. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. And and what can I say about my sister, Elda? My goodness. Um, she's not just a force. She's a force for justice and good in a world that needs all of us in the mix and in the fight. So I, you know, I want to thank Elda for being in this conversation as well. Um, so, who am I? I am a Korean American. I am an immigrant and I'm a father and I'm a teacher. And I, you know, I, I am also a Christian and I'm a Confucian. Hmm. Now I'm going to start with those markers because as you say, you want cultural narrative. And one of the things that we do in describing cultural narratives is to make sure that we provide a thickness and a complexity to what those narratives are. I think one of the things that we're facing in this moment, particularly in regard to race and restorative, questions of restorative justice, is to not just complicate the narratives, but to demythologize stories that are being told about our peoples by other folks who are not our people. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, uh, I said I'm an immigrant because in this moment um, where there's not a celebration of the diaspora, so it's not a celebration of people on the move, but there's a demonization of the light. And then made it a point of speaking in public to say, you know, I'm a first-generation immigrant. Uh, I came to the United States in 1966. My parents and I were direct beneficiaries of the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act, one of the three pillar civil rights acts. And I say this because the opportunity to come to the United States was not a federal mandate, but it was on the shoulders of the black freedom struggle. It was on the shoulders of the civil rights movement. And so I want the folks that we're in conversation with to understand that the Asian diaspora, Asian immigrants are very much beholden to and indebted to uh, the black freedom struggle and that we're in solidarity with that. And that, you know, when we talk about uh, the cultural narratives of racial justice, um, it's not any singular group, but we do this in solidarity. Uh, I also said that I'm a Confucian and a Christian, and I say this because I'm a, a, a child of the traditions of love, Christianity, and of ethical responsibility, Confucianism. So that, you know, how I understand my faith uh, is constituted by those two grand traditions. And, you know, in a, in a, in a time where, how do I put this, that people are feeling forced to simplify who they are. You know, again, like I'm trying to keep it as complex and as thick as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lastly, I said, you know, I'm a teacher. You know, I, I consider my primary vocation in the world, the reason that um, God put me on this, this green and decreasingly green planet is that I'm here to teach people. Um, you know, by, by profession, I'm a professor at Connecticut College and also a visiting scholar at the Annenberg School for Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. 
Um, but, you know, when I say I'm a teacher, it's not just in the classroom, but it's for a broader public to engage everyday folks into conversations um, that, not that they don't have them ordinarily, but I'm, my role is to afford them the opportunity to have deeper, richer conversations that they might not have access to. Very important, very important. Thank you, David. That that role of teacher, yes, is so uh, much beyond the classroom and ways in which your primary vocation also spills over into uh, broadening this conversation uh, because it helps us um, uh, root ourselves in a way that what is restorative and, and looking at the restorative justice and spiritual practices that you have named Confucianism and Christianity. And so if I were to dig deeper in, into my West African roots, I, I would want to also uh, pull out those practices that are very much a part of my own cultural context. But, but what lessons can you offer us during this Lenten season um, to incorporate those restorative justice practices that decenters whiteness and, and assist in also in decolonizing, just not yourself, but again, as a teacher, how you assist others do that? I would also love um, to hear, as, as Velda said, decentering whiteness, love to hear you articulate what that, what that means, what that looks sure. like for our listeners. Sure. So let me offer you a uh, definition of racism that I've been um, developing over the last few years. And, uh, racism is a structural compromise of the integrity of a people. A structural compromise of the integrity of a people. And if you think about the primary agents of that structural compromise, it has largely been um, white supremacy, uh, kind of overreaching Eurocentrism and uh, an imperialism that is not just military, not just physical, but as we know, is psychic and spiritual as well. Now, if you take the, the definition uh, that I offered of uh, racism, as, racism as a structural compromise of the integrity of the people, one of the things that we have to understand for people of color is that the commerce of who we are in the world the discourse that we've inherited is one to say that we are less than human. Now, of course, our traditions, as Velda said, from West Africa, my own from uh, Asia and America, and, you know, again, like from the Black Freedom traditions, it's not to say that our self-understanding is less than human, but uh, an overriding imperial discourse says that we are. And so, so much of what we have to do is not just to um, establish our full humanity, and again, not to do it in a way where we say that history of you know, colonial settlers, set, um, settler uh, invasion, uh, you know, white supremacy, and all those things uh, are untrue. They are constitutive of who we are. But the, the, the fight is to say, not just in spite of those histories, that we can offer up hope, we can offer up restoration. So let me give you an example from uh, Confucianism. One of the fundamental uh, principles of practice and value in Confucianism is this idea of reciprocity and filial piety. Now, the patriarchal version of filial piety is to understand that, you know, there's the superiority of men and fathers rule, rule the roost and that kind of thing. The, the form of Christianity, the Confucianism that I have uh, inherited is an expansive humanism so that we have in our piety to one another and our loyalty to one another the responsibility to lift up the humanity of each other. 
And, the, and here, the reciprocity is, is deeply important. That's an ethical responsibility. So there's a mutuality between us to elevate our humanity so that we understand and bear witness to the structural compromise of, of the integrity of our peoples. We understand that racism stands at the core of the work of elevating our humanity. Now, I say all this because you know, it's not as if Confucianism is uh, uh, a rising spiritual fad. <laughs> you know, it's a, uh, uh, an ancient tradition, but not one in which, you know, frankly, you know, many Asian Americans will embrace. Um, again, they'll you know, uh, eschew it as patriarchal and whatnot. And you know, often what I do as a teacher is say, we need to dig into all of the traditions that have shaped our people. You know, even if they're, you know, and we, you know, we see this with Christianity, the, the patriarchy and racism, what nationalism and, and homophobia and Christianity, you know, we can make our traditions better rather than to dispatch them and say that they're no longer useful. Um, you know, the, the richness of those experiences, the understand, you know, it's, it's, we, we don't want to be nihilistic about this thing that everything becomes obsolete because we have one critique of them. Mm-hmm. Thank you, David. I just wanted to um, just broaden that for our audience in, in terms of looking at all traditions because we get stuck oftentimes in, in a white Christian supremacy. And, and what that means is that we look at the West and ways in which the Roman Church or the Protestant Church has shaped our identity to look through this lens when all That's traditions right. should be looked at. Um, as I review the, the continental the African continental Christian, um, whether it's Orthodox, whether it comes out of uh, West Africa or East Africa, that there is room at the table uh, to bring those traditions in. And so, um, you know, ways in which you can um, talk about some of the ways that um, the structural systems around mm-hmm. Christianity, um, what does that mean for our audience so that they are not feeling as if we are trying to strip the identity oh, yeah. of Christianity, but we want to expand the idea that Christianity uh, has comes in many forms. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, you know, one of the things that one does as a teacher is to emphasize the history, not just current experience. And, you know, as I say, you know, when I say that we should heed the traditions that have shaped us, even if they have been damaging, um, you know, and, and that's a com- it's complicated, not just uh, spiritually, but it's, compl- it's complicated psychologically, uh, it's complicated uh, conceptually, you know, to... to understand that Christianity is not something that we we jettison because we have, again, like some damnable critiques. I mean, we, we look at what has happened in the Catholic Church, and we look at the, the, the real harm people have suffered at the hands of the Church. You know, I, I, I'm a Christian not um, because I think Christian, the forms of Christianity in the world are perfect. But I think, but I truly believe and live a faith that understands that the redemptive power of the faith. Hmm. And when I, the redemptive power of the faith is something that is, it's, it's not that I say it's unimpunable, but it, it, it's, 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 it continues to restore. Mm-hmm. And I say this both from a personal standpoint, but also think about the work that, you know, Velda, you've been doing 
in the task force to name that as a Christian practice mm-hmm. is to say that is a counter discourse, a counter man to, uh, you know, forms of Christianity and say, well, you know, we're still, we're still patriarchal and we like it that way. You know, we're still white supremacists and we like it that way. We're fighting in many ways for the soul of Christianity. We're fighting in many ways for the souls of um, the lay people. And frankly, you know, from a pedagogical standpoint, we're also trying to give people options to understand their tradition. You know, uh, you, Tracy, I think at the top of the um, hour, you had asked about practices, particularly in regard to Lent. And I, I can't help but think about the ways in which, if we're going to talk about restorative justice and race and Christianity, then we have to reinvigorate how we understand uh, repentance and how we understand the possibilities of redemption. You know, that. You know, and the, the tradition itself, you know, and the practitioners and the institution itself have to repent for all sorts of sins. Um, you know, the sin against people of color, sin against women, sin against uh, queer folks, sin against indigenous folks, uh, and, and so on. But then we don't just leave it at the repentance. I mean, you, 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 you bear witness to the wrong you know, that has been done. But again, if we're true to the faith, we say there's a redemptive possibility your humanity hasn't been permanently compromised. Your, your spirit has not been permanently compromised. But there's, there's a redemptive possibility, and that lies at the core of our faith. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Um, David has given so much um, for us to think about and talk about. What, what would you say um, in regards to your own identity um, that plays into this Lenten season? And, and can you lift some of that up for our listeners? Sure. I'm really resonating. You know, David, I'm, what you just said, your humanity is not permanently diminished, I don't remember exactly the word you used, but um, the possibility of redemption and what you said uh, earlier in the in the episode of uh, just in our historicity, we need to recognize that um, the construct of race was for the purpose of of making not white people less human, not human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, I have been on a journey of, uh, trying to restore a, um, liberated and true humanity in myself, um, and connect to a cultural narrative. And it's been really challenging because, um, my ancestry, I have access to ancestry, but I do not have access to cultural narrative, um, yet, uh, you know, I know that my father was born in the Philippines and his father was U.S. serviceman and my grandmother spoke Tagalog, for example. Um, but the, you know, the um, kind of the the perspective that brought that relationship about was not one of, you know, romantic love, but really what I think was my, my grandmother's strength and wisdom to secure um, for herself and her family, um, you know, a means, uh, to live and thrive as she might've understood it. 
Um, and I was um, born in the United States and specifically told that I was white um, and socialized as white. And my mother's ancestry is English and French and German and Jewish. But I didn't know any of that until my adult years. You know, none of this was made known to me. It was just kind of this general normative uh, United States um, whiteness. Uh, and I think my father definitely rejected um, his identity. You know, he I appear, I can, you know, I, I pass, if you will. <laughs> you know, I've got dark, dark hair, dark eyes, but um, politically I'm white and have access to all that power and privilege. Um, and so reconstructing, you know, what it means to be someone, because my ancestral, what my ancestral information tells me is that there's a large colonial story in my, in my history and in my very body. Um, and my grandmother has died and I have not been able to go to the Philippines. And I have parents who are either have rejected or cut off from their own cultural narratives. And it's um, and here I am trying to divest from whiteness and realizing that all the power and privilege that I have access to um, is is the fruit of something that I need to also be actively dismantling in my commitment to justice and anti-racism work and a flourishing humanity. Mm. So you know, there's um, I, I hear encouragement in your words, David, but I also there's not a lot of practical. <laughs> things that I have been led to. And I find myself, um, uh, yeah, being suspect from different places I didn't expect. Um, as I try to, um, uh, just, I root my identity in something more liberative than whiteness, you know? No, no, I hear that. And I hear both the kind of pain and power of your story. Uh, you know, one of the things I would encourage, not just you, Tracy, specifically, but in this conversation, um, you know, the frame of cultural narrative can um, come off as a bit abstract. And, you know, one of the things I think would be helpful for your listeners, but also uh, other people wrestling with comparable struggles as you've described with your own family, which is to say, you know, what are the untold stories that are in us? What are the untold stories that are in our people? And why are they untold? You know, I, I give you an example. Um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm no spring chicken. And so, you know, and yet uh, my parents, not until within a year uh, ago, began to tell me stories of their experience during the Korean War. And these are stories I had never heard before. Mm-hmm. Stories of their own childhoods, um, their own struggles, traumas, uh, experience of war, uh, certainly American imperialism and otherwise. And, you know, I've, I've really wrestled with both why it was such a struggle for them to tell these stories, but also my own um, responsibility, I'll put it this way, my own responsibility of not of digging deeper to help them tell those stories. And for, for me to find out those stories. And, you know, I, I think a cultural narrative might have helped, you know, a cultural frame, but actually even just the, the query to my mother and to my father over the years, you know, what was it like for you during the war? 
And if they say they don't want to talk about it, say, like, you know, what kind of help, what kind of salve do you need so that you can begin to tell those stories again? Hmm. And you don't want to have to wait, you know, for someone who's approaching the twilight years of their lives to share those stories. Hmm. And so, you know, what, what, what we find, what we end up finding in these cultural narratives should be the richness of the details of specific experiences. Uh, you know, the, the, the story that you tell about your own family from the Philippines and, you know, we know the imperial history of the Philippines, the multiple imperial histories mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. Philippines. Right. right. It's not just an American history. It's a French one and Spanish and so on. You know, it's, it's Portuguese. You know, it, it's, it's this, uh, it's, the Philippines is a site of complex imperial conquest. But it's also a site of complex attempts at forms of liberation in one way or another. And again, you know, the, the complexity of telling those stories, is, it's really hard. It's like really, really hard. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. uh, and, you know, you were saying, Tracy, like, I don't, you're fi- looking for practical hooks or handles. Um, but, you know, even just the kind of practical questions, like, why, why haven't we, why has, have our families not told these stories more fully and readily sooner? Yeah. And what can I do? to open up those spaces so that it's not just, you know, descendants of the Filipinos or, um, or Koreans and otherwise, but it's to say, you know, how do we generate the conditions for the possibility of those unheard, untold stories surfacing? Right. And I wonder what, Velda, you would also think of this. Um, and David, there is something you know, in, in anti-racist, in anti-racism work, people, um, uh, people socialized white who are committed to anti-racism work. Um, there are a few basic practices that have come about and one is to acknowledge the land. Um, even though, you know, this is not, not the place that my biological ancestors, you know, inhabited, but to even say, well, this is the place now known as Charlottesville, Virginia, remind it just shakes and reminds us we're part of a bigger story. Mm-hmm. And um, even for me, I don't have cultural, but in working with Velda, I've begun to say I'm a person of Southeast Asian and European descent who was socialized white mm-hmm. and have access to this privilege and power that I hope honestly is is gone someday because we found a way to um, come decenter that power and privilege in a way that humanity comes, um, to the fore. Uh, so those are practices that I feel like are starting to, then you, you start to have these just very simple rituals and these markers that, um, pull you into a different kind of story. And, uh, in my greatest imagination, might actually start to build community. Mm-hmm. But for people who don't have immediate access to cultural narrative, it is kind of this um, recognizing the possibility, David, of stories untold, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but also recognizing we're, we're kind of making it also, we're making a way in this moment in time, um, connected and woven together with others. I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, Tracy, I am thankful uh, that you raised that because our relationship uh, allows us to dig deeper. 
mm-hmm. into those narratives and to correct um, ways in which um, we use colonial language. Mm-hmm. And um, it is through relationship. This is the Lenten season, so it is about the relationships uh, that right. that we have. Uh, and I love David's pain and power in our story, and you sharing your pain and power, and the ways in which my pain and power comes uh, when I am silenced or invisible, um, and yet. Um, I think of my ancestors who are deeply rooted in this land, and yet um, they have not had an apology um, for the enslavement of the ancestors. And so it's very powerful for these relationships to be important in ways that we can deconstruct even whiteness, uh, because that was not the original intent. They were Europeans, right? They were French or Dutch or Spanish or Portuguese. So how do we reclaim that? I always ask people, um, where did your ancestors come from and how did they get here? Was it a choice? Mm-hmm. Because when I, mm-hmm. I look at my own background, my great-great-great-grandparents my didn't have a choice. Uh, they were forced from their land and um, forced uh, at the bottom of a ship and forced over the Atlantic. And so, um, but they brought with them liberation stories, freedom stories rooted in their land. And we've lost that narrative because of the pain uh, and because mm-hmm. of the power over them. And so I think it's important uh, for us to name that in ways in which we begin to deconstruct white and black and other, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is not just a black and white conversation, but it is African-centered or Asian-centered or um, uh, French-centered. And so how do we dig deeper, um, David? And how do we develop these strategies for liberation? Because mm-hmm. some people will go to the text. Uh, they will look right. biblically and theologically, and they will you know, put a period on it and close the text. Right. Where God is still speaking, uh, if right. God were not still speaking, we would not be having this conversation. But I believe deeply that God is speaking through us and that there's a new mm. canon being written. And so um, I would just would love to hear, David, how you are, are, are really deepening your understanding around uh, biblical, oh, yeah. theological, and, and, and your liberation strategies um, yeah. that will help our listeners dig deeper. Mm, I love those questions, Elder. Um, you know, they. You know, let me let me back up one second and reiterate something I said earlier. You know, when I said that I'm a direct beneficiary of the Black freedom struggle, the other thing I always say in public, and I'll say this on uh, this podcast, is that I consider myself a steward of the Black freedom struggle. That that tradition is my tradition. And it's important for someone who comes from my heritage or who looks like me to invoke my participation uh, and centeredness in that tradition. Um, because it, it, again, it, it, it both thwarts common understanding, but also expands what that tradition is about. You know, the liberation practices and, and stories that you, t- you talked about so powerfully are one that I think my humanity would be impossible if I did not have a fundamental appreciation for those. If I did not have a fundamental understanding that 
people of African descent who came here enslaved, in shackles, in boats, who, you know, many millions gone. That still persisted with love in their hearts and freedom in their spirits. And it's both inspiring and humbling. And it frankly is a set of frames that I have to understand, not just my inheritance uh, from the biblical traditions, but also what, how I understand freedom in general. Like I, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, viable to or acceptable to say that we can, uh, we should espouse a form of freedom, emancipation, racial justice <clears throat> without understanding, without understanding that uh, our indebtedness to the black freedom struggle. Now, having said that, um, yeah, it's it's one thing for someone uh, like me to say that. It's another to get have that absorbed into communities and practices. Right? So you have to establish, and so you know, I I do this performatively, which is to say, like I do this in front of audiences, and I do this in front of people, and I do this in my writing, because it's important for people to hear it with some sense of authority. And I, I use this word very specifically, right? That I, I, I invoke the authority of that tradition and I invoke the authority of my own kind of training and experience and say the conclusion I have come to in regard to justice is, a fully, um, is, is fully constituted by this, this freedom struggle. And, you know, I, I, I do so appreciate what you're saying about the kind of opening up of the canon or the creation of a new canon, the evolving of a new canon. Um, you know, the, uh, one approaches sacred scripture always in context. You know, it's never abstract. It's not something that has um, an independent life apart from history. And so, you know, when I come to the Gospels, or when I come to Isaiah, or I come to Amos, and, 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 and so on, it's always through the critical lens that I've inherited from my readings of, for example, Toni Morrison, or James Baldwin, or Grace Lee Boggs, you know, which is to say that the, the, the existential impact and the import of the, that biblical, biblical tradition uh, is not just the, the, the biblical text itself, but the, the text in which the, those texts are in conversation with um, in our moment, and hopefully for not just our ancestors, but for um, the generations to come. What I hear you, what I hear you saying, David, is that by looking through looking through this living human struggle of liberation at our scriptures is what grounds you in, um, I guess, in what we're trying to illuminate here, this, de- this, this process of restorative justice and decolonizing. Um, I, well, but, scri- but scripture, I should say, like, scripture broadly understood. So, yeah, you know, sure. the, the, the untold stories that we were familiar. Sure, thank you. you know, those, um, those are sacred texts. Absolutely. Thank you for um, for clarifying that. I, I have some concern uh, when you say the that you know the African American freedom struggle is my movement too, because I hear so many uh, white folks quote. <laughs> 
people like MLK and um, and yet are perpetrating violence. And so I just want to dig a little bit deeper and say when you when I hear you say that, I understand that you have made a connection between your cultural narrative and the and the unfolding story of the of the Black Freedom struggle in the United States. You you understand that direct connection and also um, uh, what it um, what it gave to you, uh, and therefore perhaps what's at risk in. Um, in that continued struggle, um, in the de- and, and also in the continued oppression, in the continued oppression of um, and dehumanization of people of African descent in this country, that also directly impacts you as a as a person also who's historically been marginalized or pushed, you know, into different racial categories. That's what I, I, I hear. And I, so I just want to encourage people who are, who have access to privilege and power, who are socialized white, um, that we also need to be able to connect our stories to this story and identify, um, the cost and enter into a place of uh, solidarity before we start <laughs> quoting, um, you know, the the greatest freedom authors, and just say um, and continue to live our lives as if we're not complicit in these systems. Does that make sense? It, it does. I mean, I I, I think the, the question about let's call it um, a lived hypocrisy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, saying you know, saying one thing and doing another. Um, you know, I mean, we're we're all inconsistent in one way or another, for sure. I mean, we we would not be talking about repentance and redemption if that were not the case. Um, having said that, when I say that the Black Women's Struggle is my tradition, uh, it's not just a text or a quote or an appreciation from afar. But it actually required a pretty deep set of um, call it like existential interrogations on my part, which is, which is to say, like, the confrontations with limitations and the possibilities of death. And to, to come to the conclusion that my understanding of, let's say, human possibility, which might otherwise be known as freedom and justice, um, would not have any kind of traction, would not have any kind of dur- durability if it were not for, again, this inheritance that I feel and I, I participate in. So, you know, I, I, when, I, when I say that I, I consider myself a part of the Black freedom tradition, the Black freedom struggle, it's not to say that I'm in solidarity adjacent to that. You know, and, and this, is, this is a very important point. It's not adjacent to it, but it's as someone who, who steps right in the middle of it. It might be uncomfortable. You know, you know, you, there might be uh, folks who say, well, what are you doing here? But I'll be honest with you. I, I've, I've said this in a lot of different settings, and I've said this to a lot of different folks, I, you know, uh, not just in places like New York, uh, where Phil and I first met, but, you know, in, in Selma, Alabama. You know, I was uh, there uh, last April with uh, Reverend William Barber. He invited me down to speak at Brown Chapel during the commemoration of the crossing the end of Tennis Bridge. And I said the same thing there. And, you know, in the audience were uh, the foot soldiers from the, the, the struggle of the early 60s, you know, the, 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 the survivors of that. And the, the statement of gratitude 
from those folks. I'll never forget them. The statement of gratitude and appreciation, you know, thank you for saying that. You know, thank you for saying that. And the, 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 the palpable sense of um, affirmation and appreciation from them. You know, if I, 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 I don't need any, for, I'll be honest with you, I don't need any further corroboration than you know, the folks who were standing at that struggle, you know, from 63 on. And to say, like, yes, you're a part of our tradition. Yes, you are. And so, you know, you do, you know, you do that you know, despite any kind of discomfort. And, you know, you have to interrogate the source of your own discomfort. So if you're, you know, you're saying as a white person, well, I don't feel comfortable saying or making such a claim for us again. And I would, I would say, well, why don't you feel comfortable? What is the, what, what is the, what is the, what is the, the, the source of that discomfort? Is it something that you're holding back? Is it some part of you that's holding back? Or, or again, like it's a kind of a, a lived hypocrisy where you, you're saying one thing and living another? You know, which is also to say, like, what are you, what are you willing to let go of? Right. And so, David, it's uh, thank you for sharing that and, and, and making that plainer. And I don't hear appropriation or imposing your identity onto the struggle. Um, and if I understand you rightly, there is a, a, you're making the connection between um, your own identity and struggle and ways in which that identity and struggle resonates with the black liberation struggle. And so that okay. is an um that is that is an appreciation. And again, it it broadens the circle when we began to talk about the strategies um, for our, our listening audience. Uh, again, not to um, have the solidarity of other cultural narratives uh, be dominant over, but how do we um, move and learn from one another? And so one of the other racial justice task force members that has been helpful uh, in the struggle um, has also learned from uh, the African-American context, uh, the African context. Um, and so that is an appreciation, whereas I would make space to learn the, create, uh, the Korean story, the Asian story, to broaden my mm. own understanding about both language and imperialism, as well as struggle, mm -hmm. and in ways in which that draws solidarity to this. And so uh, that's one of the ways in which I think we can do this uh, liberation, uh, strategies for liberation, is to listen and learn from one another. And it is uncomfortable. And so having uh, come out of a very progressive, uh, radical church, uh, my pastor, uh, <laughs> Jeremiah would say, afflict the comfortable and comfort <laughs> the afflicted. And so go. we want there this to be one of the ways in which people say, what must I do? Not to be saved, but what must I do to create the solidarity? What must I do to relinquish this hold on me that keeps me um, from hearing stories and seeing people and being decolonized? What must I read? Um, where yeah. must I lament? Um, where must I weep? And, and then where mm. must I be restored? Um, and that is the restorative justice journey, which we are embarking on uh, this season. And it's a lifetime thing. So, so I'm so glad it, it that you're on the journey yeah. with us. Yes. No, I appreciate that. I, I, you know, I should say that 
you know, the work around restorative justice when we invoke these traditions, uh, in my view, is is only as powerful as our understanding of the love that centers it. You know, so that you know, restorative justice outside of uh, an understanding that this is the work of love is not restorative justice. And so, you know, Tracy, back to the point we were making about connecting up experiences. You know, if we're going to talk about repentance and redemption, we're going to talk about um, reconstituting the humanity of folks who have, of peoples who have experienced the structural compromise of their integrity, of their humanity. We have to understand that that is loving work. And it's not just work on behalf of somebody else, but it's, it's a loving work in ourselves. And so, you know, the interrogation of like, what is making me uncomfortable in connecting up with other people's uh, traditions or to understand the, you know, my own people's complicity or collusion with uh, uh, dehumanization is to, uh, is, is, is to understand that that query is an act of trying to under, love ourselves even more. Yes. Yes, thank you. you, know, thank that, that, you. Yes. Yeah. So it is love, um, and it's more than my name, um, but it is, <laughs> it's, it's a reality in which we live, and, and, and not, you know, love in that sentimental kind of soft, but a, a radical love. Um, and right. so we are, we are moving in this season of radical love. So thank you, David, for being with us today and providing of such course. a of rich course. conversation. And Tracy, um, I am, I'm just overwhelmed every time we gather and how much we can right. just deepen this for right. our audience. <laughs> Yeah, David, I'm just so grateful. And um, I've heard in this conversation encouragements to our listeners to listen and learn from one another, to interrogate the sources of our uh, discomfort, and to work together to create the possibility that unheard stories will be heard. And uh, I think that those are all uh, really powerful, practical things to uh, leave our listeners with. So, David, thank you so much. Felda, thank you so much. And Thank you, uh, both of you. We look forward to continuing the work together. Thank you. Thank you. Hello to listeners of Podcast for a Just World. Did you know we're not the only ones podcasting about dismantling white supremacy and the intersections of our activism, faith, and community organizing? We encourage you to check out The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, coordinated by our friend, the Reverend Ann Dunlap. They're celebrating their 100th episode, so now is a great time to add them to your favorite podcasts. The Word is Resistance is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud forward slash The Word is Resistance. Resistance.